0: Well, good afternoon, fine, kind, and wonderful listeners. It is Sunday, February the 8th, 2009, nine, four ten p.m., and I hope that everyone is doing wonderful and had a wonderful week. Um, nothing particularly new. Uh, I did post uh, a picture of uh, Isabella's first smile, or at least the first recorded smile, which is um, uh, absolutely cute and adorable beyond words. And um, it is actually part of a video. We took a video of uh, me doing the silly dance and song which made her laugh, uh, which I imagine will continue to make her laugh well into her 20s uh, in public arenas. And uh, <clears throat> I was going to post uh, the video, but my concern was that uh, it's, so, uh, it's so cute and she's so absolutely uh, adorable that I'm concerned that there will be spontaneous conception among the female listenership and, uh, of course, possibly some of the men. And... Of course, if we end up with immaculate conceptions based on the cuteness of Isabella's laughing video, then we're back into cult territory. And we just put that beast to rest. So let's not go down that road again. Uh, that's why uh, I'm, I'm withholding the video for now, because of its fecundity and its uh, possibility of creating a second through 44th coming. That's my concern. So um, we will post something soon. But uh, that is uh, – uh, she's doing, she's doing just fantastically – and, um, is, uh, smiling quite a lot. And, um, yeah, she's, uh, she's almost 10 pounds now, which is uh, really, uh, quite amazing. So, uh, it's a uh, wonderful parenting is still great. It's fascinating to see how strong her willpower is, uh, and, and how benevolent her willpower is, right? I mean, she's, if she gets upset, but she gets upset maybe once or twice a day. Uh, and, uh, we usually can sort it out pretty quickly and she's very, she soothes herself very quickly, but it is wonderful to see this, the, the primal will of a child. It's wonderful. It's still, of course, a little sad when, you know, Christina and I were talking about the degree to which that sort of gets exercised, so to speak, out of children so often. And of course, that's not our goal. Um, so it's wonderful to see this, uh, elemental and benevolent will, uh, that she has a will is not quite the right word because she's still <laughs> largely running off biological cues. But, uh, then again, so do I. So I'm really not one to, to hurl stones in that direction. Sorry. Impulses. Yes, that's right. Um, again, not one, a glass house. I don't want to cast any stones out of, um, since she came out of an impulse in many ways. So. Uh, that's it. Uh, other news. Um, sorry about the paucity of podcasts, though I would recommend the recent one on negotiations. Um, but uh, it, it's, uh, it's been a week of writing. Uh, I've got about 150 pages done of the new book. Um, about 148 of them are the phrase, all work and no play makes Steph a dull boy. But uh, then it really takes off after that and I substitute Jill. So uh, the book is coming along very nicely. I'm very happy with it. Uh, for those who don't know, it's the sequel to um, How Not to Achieve Freedom. It's uh, How to Achieve Freedom. It's my thoughts, though, of course, I can't say with any absolutism, uh, with, with certainty about the only path. But it's certainly my thoughts about the necessary and sufficient steps that we need to take as individuals in areas that we can actually affect in order to build a free society in the future. We won't live to see it, I don't think, but uh, I am absolutely certain about certain things that need to be done uh, in order to create that possibility. And, uh, of course, uh, none of it has to do with voting or education. Um, So I hope that uh, it will make sense in companionship to the last book, uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting it done. It will be another couple of weeks still until... It's done, and uh, if the Philosopher Kings are interested, just let me know. I could always post some bits of it or the stuff that's been um, proofread uh, up there and get your feedback before the final draft is done. Just let me know. Um, and th- that's really it. Uh, nothing, nothing else particularly exciting. Uh, no, uh, the media stuff has, has completely died down, which is wonderful. Uh, so we, uh, we continue onwards and upwards with uh, our explorations, our curiosity, our reasonings, and our expostulations. So that having been said, uh, the the show, as always, uh, the, uh, the 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 driving wheel, Woo the driving wheel is turned over to you, the fine listeners, and uh, I am uh, uh, happy to uh, to entertain your hopefully entertaining questions. So over to you, fine listeners.
1: I had a quick question about. Um uh, something that you mentioned in a um a podcast um with Greg it was the the internet dating podcast i think um you said that um that a living together before getting married was a uh, bad idea and i and i was just wondering uh, what uh if you could elaborate on that for me
0: yeah Chris, christina told me that so here you, here you go sweetie
2: I told you that. <laughs> You're the one who lived with someone before you were before you and I met. Can you talk about that experience?
0: Definitely handled, I must say. Um, <laughs> well, uh, there is um, there is some statistical evidence and and it seems to be quite compelling that living together before getting married uh, results in uh, a higher uh, separation or divorce rate after marriage. So that I mean that's sort of I, I wouldn't extrapolate from my own personal experiences. I lived with uh, two women, uh, not at the same time. Uh, I lived with two women before uh, I met Christina, and uh, neither of those situations led to marriage, although one was close. And uh, neither of those situations uh, obviously sustained themselves uh, as as relationships. So that's nothing uh, of any relevance whatsoever, uh, other than to say that my experience conformed to the general statist- statistics. But there does seem to be a negative correlation between living together and the success of a marriage. Of course, it's not 100 percent, and so on. And uh, in Quebec here, everybody's shacking up, eh? But um, there, there does seem to be that, and and there's some theoretical reasons behind it that you know we can go into if you're at all interested. But um, but that's uh, uh, that's sort of where that statement comes from.
1: Yeah, I actually am interested in the theory behind that.
0: Well, I can't, uh, I can't speak to any factual theories, and I don't know that there are any particularly factual theories. But um, what I would say is that in my experience, and again, this is nothing that, that means anything, right? But in my experience, uh, li- living together was kind of like playing house. Uh, it was uh, fun. Uh, it was like a roommate with sex uh, situation. It was, for me at least, not... I mean, relative to to getting married, it was not a mature situation. And when you live together with someone, uh, I mean, when you're romantically involved, when you live together, what happens is your lives become intertwined, you know, whether you like it or not. Uh, Because you either take this, you know, line down the middle of the fridge, everybody pays exactly 50% kind of thing, which is more of a traditional roommate situation and doesn't give you that flexibility of uh, the back and forth uh, in terms of finances or and so that to me is is not you know that's not a very practical approach or solution or you just start to blend together right you 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 make decisions together um you get cell phones together you get you know your bills your cable your rent your, your all of this kind of stuff uh, occurs and you start to blend together. Uh, you start to share friends, you start to share hobbies, you start to share finances, you start to share all these kinds of things. And yet there's no there's no real commitment there. So it's like you're, you're married uh, in terms of uh, the blending together of your lives, which occurs just as a matter of course and as a matter of practicality, but there's no there's no core commitment there. So at what point do you make, you either make the commitment or you don't. And I think that the the issue that I have is that, and this is just a basic sort of economic uh, proposition or a pseudo economic proposition, which is that the higher the barrier to entry, the more choosy you are of making a particular contract or something, right? So um, you're going to be more picky choosing a cell phone provider if you're locked in for three years than if you're just buying a burner, you know, in this sort of wire scenario. And if you end up blending your life together in a very complicated and foundational way with someone without having the higher barrier to entry of let's get married, you're kind of putting the cart before the horse in my in my way of thinking. And again, none of this is obviously <laughs> true or, or factual. This is just sort of the way that I, I think about it and see if it's of any use to you. And so I think that uh, uh, given that living together ends up with the complications of marriage, that you, your lives begin to flow together, to to enmesh, to sort of bleed together, then the question I would sort of have is, well, why why not why not be married before you do it? And of course, the reality is that the reason that people don't get married before they live together is they're not committed. Right? I mean if they were if they were committed and wanted a life together and it was the only person, then they would get married and then live together. But if they live together, then they end up in an involuntarily committed state. Right? Because your as you say, your finances, your your life, your friends, your hobbies, your living styles, and so on all get enmeshed together. So I guess that's that's I think I think that's what happens. That is is problematic. And so, my my sort of thing is like when people live together, and and this again was my experience, right? So when I sort of lived together with a woman, it was it was fun, it was convenient, you know, two can live as cheaply as one, and so on. but there was never any there was no discussion ahead of time of and where is this going and and what is the goal right and uh, I, I think that what happens is then people end up with a practical enmeshment of living together complications without the commitment of marriage and i think that just becomes problematic and of course there's almost always one person who wants to go to the next level and one person who's more hesitant and if you then live together that can create an increasing source of conflict and uh, uh, you know let's to to take the traditional example which is not to say this is true in every case but if the woman then wants to get married and the man is skittish and they're already living together, what are her options? Well, I guess she can hope he'll propose. She can uh, – but, but they're already you know enmeshed that way. Like they're already married in a practical sense. There's just no commitment in a theoretical sense. Um, or I guess she could threaten to move out if he won't marry her. But that's messy and, of course, that might backfire and nobody really wants to have that as the foundation of a marriage anyway. So I think – that given that living together leads to these kinds of enmeshed and entwined lives, it's better to say, okay, well, do I want to get married to this person? Now, if I do want to get married to this person, fantastic, then propose and and go to it. And, and if you don't want to get married to this person, then I don't think it's a very good idea to start living together because it's not – you're not going to get that feeling later. You know, like after living together, it's rare that people say, well, now <laughs> – now that I've taken you for the two-year test drive, I think I'll buy the car. I yeah, that doesn't generally happen. And so what happens is you can end up wasting a lot of time. And uh, it's, of course, quite a comfortable living arrangement to be living together, right? I mean, you're, you have romance, you have uh, cohabitation, you have friendship, you have sex and all those kinds of things. And so you can burn a lot of years in this kind of null zone. Uh, and I think that does create a certain amount of resentment over time if the two people are not in the same place. So that again, means nothing about anything other than that would be somewhat of my theory as to why living together uh, does not then result in, this is, you know, I'm good enough to live with, but I'm not good enough enough to marry. That just is done. I don't think that's a very uh, positive thing to to take into uh, a cohabitation. So again, that's all nonsense, but that's sort of my my thinking on it. Uh, What what do you think?
1: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, It's kind of... like, uh, if you don't have uh, any skin in the game, so to speak, then um, then it's going you're gonna make worse uh, decisions, and uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, for, cohabitation turns uh,
0: marriage into a kind of government program, and right, I exactly. think that the the value of marriage to me has has a lot to do with. Well, sorry, you had something you wanted to add about.
2: Yeah, I just no, I, just, I, I never. Sorry i I've never lived with anyone other than uh, than my 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 family of origin and and stuff um and but I do think that it, there is a level of trust in a marriage that is uh, achievable that probably is not achievable again no no experience with not with having lived with anyone other than uh, my my husband um, but I do think that the level of trust in a marriage is is deeper than it would be in a common law situation um, there is there is a vow that is taken in front of your friends and your family. Um, there is a level of commitment that is publicly, um, publicly stated and, and it's observed and it's, it's celebrated. That's not to say that two people who live together don't have commitment to each other, but I just think it's more tenuous and I think it breeds. It, it, there's room for insecurity in a non-marital uh, situation. Again, just anecdotal uh, and not based on any personal experience.
0: The last thing that I would say as well is that, uh, as I was saying, the, the value of family to me is, is uh, sorry, the value of marriage is, is the public commitment, right? So if, I mean, just to take a silly example, right? So if I'm dating, if I was dating some girl for a couple of weeks and uh, I sat down and, and, you know, talked about problems within this new relationship, uh, my friends would be more likely to say, well, you know, then maybe you shouldn't go out with her, right? Like, it's, it's like, because there's, you know, it, there's obviously no social, socially proclaimed commitment. To, uh, ...to the situation. Um, whereas if we have got all our friends together... ...and her uh, and family... ...and... Uh, ...a justice of the peace or whatever... ...and we have publicly proclaimed our intention... ...to live together and love each other... ...for the rest of our lives... ...then if I go to my friend... ...and I say I'm having problems with Christina then that my friend is going to have a different relationship to my relationship after having seen that public proclamation. And I think it's sort of like a signal to the community to say, this is the intention and therefore we're all going to work together to help them achieve this goal. Whereas if you're just kind of living together and you have problems, and pro- then it's just, kind of, okay, well, then move out, right? I mean, because <laughs> you're not that committed. You've not made any public proclamation. You've not made any vow. You've not made any intent. And, of course, the vows and intents aren't permanently binding, but that at least is the starting point that is publicly proclaimed. And uh, I, think that, uh, I think that has a difference in how the community as a whole treats the relationship. And, of course, uh, to take a uh, traditionally silly way of looking at it, Um, the commitment uh, lays the foundation if you're young and want to have children it lays the foundation for the trust that I believe is really required uh, to have children children being such a time and energy intensive thing to to things to have around you need that trust and that commitment before I I would say before you have kids and maybe there's other ways of doing it than what is called marriage I, I don't know what they are but that's sort of what what works or at least what has worked very well for me so i hope that makes some kind of sense as well
1: no that's great thank you so much that that clears that up for me
0: uh good well i'll i'll stop then (laughs) so good i'm glad that helps and again this is all just nonsense just the way that i i think about it and what's worked for me and what i've seen work for others so Uh, oh great thank you that was an excellent question so uh pleased to uh pleased to have for the next with the questioning. Uh we've had a question, uh somebody said, Just curious when sex should enter the relationship. I know that the opinion that soon is not so good. The opinion is that soon is not so good. I'm wondering what the psychological considerations regarding that. Is also going on trips together, cohabiting in that situation for the duration of the vacation would be psychologically bad early on. Um I you know, again, there's no there's no particular I mean, it's it's to me, this is all a real bell curve. And it has a lot to do with with personal preferences. And, and, you know, some people have higher or lower sex drive. Some people are more or less interested uh, in in sex. So I don't think there are any hard and fast rules. I think we can say that, you know, going through a good two thirds of the Kama Sutra on your first date may not be the best thing to do. Uh, One third. Yes. Two thirds uh, inappropriate. Uh, And of course, uh, dating for two years without having sex might also be considered um, a little uh, puritanical. So, uh, it, it's hard to say. I think that d- d- sex is something you need to talk about before you have, right? As in brace yourself. No, kidding. Incoming! Uh, something like that. But, but sex, uh, you know, there's no wrong time to have sex, in a sense, as long as uh, it, you know, too early, obviously, too late, but, you know, within that sort of bell curve, the... Uh, you know sex should not be like a lightning strike that occurs, right? Sex results from a communication. And the communication may not have to be specifically about sex. Um, you know, do you have a goat and a rotor rooter wagon? But it could be uh, sort of about uh, you know, well, what is the relationship, right? Uh, is the relationship something where we want to look for um, compatibility for permanence or is this a fling or whatever, right? So as long as there's honesty and openness about all of that kind of stuff, I think that's great. Wherever deception is mixed in with sex, the relationship is doomed for sure. And uh, so, you know, there's no bad time outside of the two extremes to have sex as long as there's clear communication about the um, uh, the relationship and, and about sexuality, right? And, and again, my suggestion is that uh, sexuality, um, you know, we get a lot of sort of propaganda, uh, so to speak, about sexuality, that it's just supposed to kind of happen, you know, like uh, um, the uh, Marvin Gaye is supposed to be playing and the uh, candles are supposed to be flickering and uh, the bodies are supposed to entwine like a bunch of plasticine snake, uh, snakes in a barrel going down a hill. Um, sorry, that's more of a metaphor from The Honeymoon. But um, <laughs> it's supposed to work that way, and, and it doesn't work that way. Um, it's, sexuality uh, between two people is something that relies on on communication. About what you like, about what you don't like, your preferences, you know, what, you know, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. And I think that uh, keeping that level of communication is uh, is important, you know, before, during and after sexuality. What did you like? What didn't you like? Uh, how did you feel when you got caught in the trapeze? Uh, was the pit of crocodiles too much? Whatever it is that your turn ons are, as long as you are clear uh, and open about, you know, RTR, right <laughs> uh, that I think is, is really essential to, to healthy, healthy and happy sex life. So that's just sort of my two cents. So yeah, just, you know, talk about it openly and, you know, what do you think about sex? Uh, you know, when do you think it should occur? Oh, partner of mine. Um, uh, and, and so on. I think that's uh, all, all good stuff. I mean, generally, you know, the way it often happens is people just neck until the point where they end up in bed together without a lot of communication. And I think that's a recipe for some not so good things. So, uh, that's sort of my again two-bit nonsense answer. Yeah, we uh, uh, Christine and I went away for a weekend before we got married. We had a couple of weekends away before we got married. Um, of course, I slept at the foot of the bed, curled up on a on the uh, bearskin rug, uh, and uh, uh, gently cried myself to sleep. Um, but no, I mean we went away. Yes. We were like, I think four, four or five months into the relationship before we went away for our first weekend together. Is that, is that right? And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's great. And there's, you know, I think, I think that can be good to see the person, you know, in a sort of tiny time slice of cohabitation. I think that's, that's fine. I was not surprised about, you know, Christina's graciousness and, uh, and you know, just enormous fun quotient when we went on vacation together, uh, for a weekend of, you know, we went to biking and hiking and, stuff like that. And, uh, so there was no, no particular surprise. I didn't sort of go in there thinking, Ooh, this is a test run or anything like that because she's just got this wonderfully constant personality that frankly, and thankfully has transferred itself to Isabella without going into the storm turbulence of my endless hysterics. But, uh, uh, so uh, I think, you yeah, know, I think that's a fine thing, too. Uh, and again, you just you just talk about it up front. We had the discussion on the second date about where we wanted the relationship to go. So when we were progressing down this road, we both knew that we wanted a committed long term relationship heading towards marriage. So when we went away for vacation, it wasn't like, well, what does this mean? Well, where is this going? What's next? Right. Because we knew where we wanted to go and we were just taking our uh, not so long time as we got in Engaged? What? Ten months after we met? No, less. Ten? Nine months after we uh, met, we got engaged, and we got married uh, six weeks later. Five weeks? Seven weeks? Why did you make me wait? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, uh, so as long as there's you know communication, then I think it's great. I think what you don't want is for one person to be kind of bewildered like okay so we're going away together what does that mean where is that going uh, i think i mean we all process it to some degree maybe women a little bit more than men but we all process that to some degree uh, where's this going what's happening and as long as you have those, that open communication and have at least an agreement then you can change that agreement if something doesn't work out but that agreement on where things are going then i think uh, yeah the weekends away can be can be great fun All right, then I uh, will stop talking for now. And if you have questions,
3: hello, stuff.
0: Hello. Um,
3: it's Jessen. Hey, what's up? Um, I was just wondering if you could um help me understand something um about myself. I can try. Well, you know how I've been going kind of crazy in the past few days, getting angry at everyone and everything um, Jake actually helped me sort through that and stop being angry, but I just want to um, figure out like what started it and where it came from and stuff like that.
0: And what do, you, uh, what do you think or what, what is your theory as to why you became uh, irritable or snappy?
3: Um, well, someone suggested that it might have been um, the podcast with Andrea that triggered it. And that was interesting to me because um, while I was listening to that podcast, I actually had almost no emotional reaction to it.
0: I can't remember if you were listening live or or afterwards.
3: Um, I listened to it afterwards.
0: And uh, what were your thoughts about why you didn't have an emotional reaction?
3: Um, I'm not sure. It's just... I think I thought um, that I should be feeling... A lot more than I was because I've gone through pretty much the exact same things, but yeah, I didn't really like, so much of anything.
0: Right, well, I understand that, but um, uh, clearly, if you were asked the abstract question, you know, I say, well, if this woman was going to be talking about this difficult stuff, which you had also experienced, you would uh, you would have some kind of reaction, uh, and therefore, the absence of a reaction is uh, is important, right? Right, yeah. It's sort of like a diagnostic tool, right? Like, uh, you know, when uh, a doctor is trying to figure out, if you come out of a car accident, if a doctor is trying to figure out whether you're paralyzed, he's going to tap your toes and say, do you feel that, right? Right. Uh, or, uh, you know, that reflex check, they they tap just below your knee, and your knee is supposed to go swinging up, right? Right. Right, so there's a diagnostic criteria, or a self-diagnostic criteria, for dissociation called logically i should feel something but i don't right right and that's uh, evidence of uh, and, and this was a very clear one right this wasn't an obscure one like someone had a dream that triggered a primal memory that i can't remember right this was a very clear and exp- explicit reproduction of uh, uh, a situation or experience that, that that you have had right that, that was enormously traumatic right yeah Right. So, so when you know logically that this is traumatic for you, but you don't feel that is uh, an indication uh, that 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 you're dissociated. Right.
3: Right. Yeah.
0: And that's that's really what you need to watch out for, right? Because if you are dissociated, then you will end up acting out. And now, of course, there's no magic plug to to recreate uh, uh, the connection with yourself. I think that generally it it, it will occur through conversation with others. Right? Dissociation uh, is a hallmark of isolation, and therefore dissociation cannot be solved on your own. Again, my opinion, no, 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 facts. Right? This is just my strong experience and the experience of people I've talked to that dissociation is uh, uh, is a symptom of isolation and attack, right? But, but fundamentally, it's around isolation. And therefore, dissociation, in my strong opinion, cannot be solved uh, in isolation. That's why I suggest a therapy, or if that's not available, to talk to somebody that you trust and care about because it is through connecting with another person that we will end up connecting with ourselves, right? I mean there there's no magical divide between self intimacy and intimacy with others right i mean i think that people um, make this mistake and it's sort of understandable why they would but i think people do make this mistake of saying well you know i uh I, you know i'm feeling disconnected from myself or whatever and therefore i need to reconnect with myself otherwise i'll have nothing to say to anyone else but i don't think that's that's the case um, I think that uh, it's, it's one and the same thing. So, I mean, for instance, um, one of the things that I, I sort of now know with my magical PhD in parenting from seven weeks on the job is that Isabella uh, re- receives or develops a sense of herself, who she is, her value, based on how Christina and I interact with her. Or whether we do or don't interact with her, right? So when I'm uh, changing her, and I'm singing to her, or I'm trying to make her laugh, or I'm uh, I'm kissing her, or I'm you know when when she opens her eyes after a nap and I give her a big smile and say hello and and uh, it's great to see you and how wonderful it is to have you as my daughter and sing songs to her and so on, then she gets the sense of herself as someone who brings pleasure into the family, right? Because we smile and we enjoy and we thoroughly uh, uh, worship and adore her. So uh, if we did not respond to her in a positive way, if we were snappy or indifferent or cold or depressed or angry or yelly or whatever, then she would develop a very different sense of herself. And the continuum between intimacy with the self and intimacy with the others uh, with, with others, to me is, is not separate. It is, it is one and the same thing. And so, if you're feeling separate from yourself, if you're feeling dissociated, you notice that, or you noticed, I think, this last week, that what happens is you begin to cause other people to dissociate, right, by putting them in impossible situations, by being snappy, by complaining a lot, by all of these kinds of things, right? Right, yeah, um, I
3: was just thinking that um, what you said about isolation, um, being isolated myself like in this last week, and um, having a lot of arguments with people and stuff. So,
0: right. So you feel detached from yourself, and so you put people into snappy and difficult and impossible to navigate situations. And you complain about, you know, being ignored or not being listened to or that other people are hypocrites so that they don't want to interact with you, right? Because that's not a lot of fun and that's also not taking much personal responsibility for which I don't criticize. I just sort of point it out, right? As a result of of this kind of stuff, right? So dissociation from yourself spreads out like a virus or like an infection to cause dissociation with other people. And that's what I mean when I say the relationship to the self is the relationship to others, and the relationship to others is the relationship to the self. Because if you 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 can't connect with yourself, because we don't have that kind of uh, objectivity, and we don't have that kind of call and answer response, unless you're like super ninja ecosystem person. But it really does take communication with other people we can then find our way back to ourselves through our intimacy, openness, honesty, and communication with other people because dissociation results from isolation and trauma. And like any psychological phenomenon, or I guess you could say medical phenomenon, the cure is the opposite of the illness, right? I mean, the the cure for an infection is the opposite of an infection, which is the antibodies which kill off the infection. And so the cure for isolation and trauma is companionship and sympathy right so uh so you talk about uh, you talk with other people uh, about what you think and feel uh, or don't think and feel and the, the absence and, and what's going on and so on and then you will find yourself connecting with them and through that and through drinking deep of their companionship and empathy you will find a way back to yourself right but this is why a community of, of friends and, and trusted people is so essential to the maintenance of, of good mental health i mean i don't I used to, many years ago, but I don't anymore, subscribe to this Randian, Galtian, Rourkean ideal of the entirely self-contained and self-esteem-driven moral entity. Uh, I just think that it's uh, mental health is a, is a communal endeavor. Uh, intimacy is a communal endeavor. And we don't fix ourselves before we present ourselves to people. All we have to do is remain honest. And uh, that, I think... Uh, then allows people to connect uh, with themselves, connect with you, and then connect ourselves back to ourselves. If that makes sense.
3: Right, um, but if the cure is companionship, what do you do when you're driving everyone away from you?
0: Well, you have to stop doing. <laughs> I mean, again, there's nothing particularly there's nothing particularly magical about this, right? I mean, there is at some point just a basic decision which says this behavior is not good, so I'm not going to do it, right? I mean, it's, it, it's like dieting, right, or, or anything, exercise. You, you know the right thing to do, right, and there's no magical book or theory that's going to push you over the edge of doing the right thing. You just, you just have to make your decision about whether you're going to do it or not, right? So if you are feeling irritable, then you, you know that you're feeling irritable, right? And and then you say, okay, well, I'm feeling irritable. It occurred after hearing this story in last week's show and I feel distant from myself. So I'm not in a position to criticize others, right? Because I'm dissociated from myself. And so, you know, when you're you're acting out your irritation and you're driving people away. You just have to not do that. I mean, that's just mindfulness. That's just being aware of who you are and the effect that you have on people, right? You just have to not do that. And I guarantee you that if you don't give yourself the permission to act out in an irritable manner against others, your true feelings will surface in about 90 seconds. Because... The irritation and the pushing other people away, it's got nothing to do with them. You're just trying to push yourself away, right? So, once we stop acting out, our true feelings will surface with extraordinary rapidity. Right? With that, we're that close to our true feelings all the time, right? But, but we just have to not give ourselves permission to do that. Okay, let's see. And, of course, um, if if she would uh, accept the conversation, and I'm sure that she would, the person to talk to would be the woman who told her sad story last week, right?
3: Um, why would that be?
0: Why would that be useful? Because it was her story that triggered your dissociation, right? Oh, right. And as you say, you, you share you share the history, right? And and obviously she had a different reaction to the conversation she had with me than you did, right? So um, you would want to try to find out what magic go-go juice that was.
3: Okay.
2: Well,
0: thanks. That was an excellent excellent question. Thanks. Uh, someone just wrote uh, in the chat room, said, sometimes it bothers me when you discount your opinion, like when you say it's nonsense or that you know nothing. I feel like if we are sure of something, then we should be confident in that. You seem confident. I think part of being our authentic self is about being concrete. Well, I I agree with you. I think that, um, that false humility is a kind of hypocrisy. And uh, I certainly I think am... I'm solid where I think I am solid, right? So, I mean, just to take an example, in the conversation last week, I did not put any caveats in front of telling this poor woman that she should not feel shame. And and I think that I have been pretty ferocious when it comes to things that I don't have any doubt about. But as to why um, living together leads to poor statistical results in terms of marital success— i simply don't have an answer that is factual i don't think anyone does and i think that uh, i always try to provide a clear delineation between that which i believe i have proved right some of the syllogistical stuff to do with upb uh is um to me pretty pretty ironclad right the the distinction between morally neutral aesthetically preferable actions and uh universally preferable behavior Uh, i'm pretty solid on that uh and i think that uh that kind of stuff or, or so the historical facts and so on, I don't put forward those, that stuff saying that it's you know, tentative or it's theoretical or whatever. Uh, but where I do feel that there is a, a lack of definitiveness in what I'm saying, I want to put that, that forward. And you know, when, when it comes to, to things like uh, uh, if, if I'm talking with someone about a dream, uh, clearly there's no you know, answer that you could say, well, this one is right and this one is wrong. Uh, And that's what I mean when I sort of say it's nonsense. I mean, it means that it it can't be proven, but that doesn't mean that it's still purely subjective because there's an emotional resonance when we have an interpretation that fits particularly with deeply emotional topics. So nonsense doesn't mean that uh, it's junk. It just means that we can't come up with an objectively sensible uh, explanation. It has nonsense, uh, nonsensical nature. But that doesn't mean that I think it's purely subjective or it means nothing whatsoever. It's just a way of saying this is my opinion it can't be proven uh, but uh, it's it may have value if it has resonance so i just want to always try to be really careful about those distinctions so that when i do say that i'm certain of something as was quite a bit of last week then uh, i think that it, it means something when i say that i'm sure of something it doesn't mean that i'm right and it doesn't mean that that or anything but it means at least that i think it's in the realm of could be right and i think it is right Uh, And that's different from some of the stuff that that I talk about. All right. So, oh, you know what? I was thinking uh, just while we wait for the next caller, uh, I was thinking um, I I still uh, didn't do FDR 1200 and I I still too kind of like doing the uh, silly songs. It's a nice break from the seriousness of a lot of the stuff that, that we do. But I simply don't have time to write any lyrics, so I was thinking if people are interested or would would like to give it a shot, um, it might be fun to, for other people to write lyrics for a song that I could sing, which would be you – know, recording the song takes like 20 minutes, but writing the lyrics takes a day, right? And I don't have a day at the moment what with the book and, and FDR and, and – uh, Isabella so uh, I was uh, I, I sort of you know the song um, if I only had a brain from the Wizard of Oz I thought maybe listening to Free Domain uh, could be uh, fun but of course that would be better for a listener to write so I just thought if uh, if anybody had any uh, yearning burning lyric uh, lyricist uh, wannabes uh, that it might be uh, fun to uh, throw something up that uh, I could because uh, I can grab the piano music for like two bucks and uh, whip the song together in 20 minutes so that's easy enough but the lyrics are tough. And I'd like to do it, but I just don't have, um, I don't have the time right now to do it, but I'd like to. So uh, anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. If, uh, if anyone had any ideas for a song that would be fun, uh, I would be more than happy to uh, wrap my uh, amateurish vocal chords around it. So uh, just um, uh, it's either, um, I would say, uh, The Wizard of Oz, Britney Spears, or some savage hardcore rap. We're still working on the best genre for what it is that I do, but uh, <laughs> that is the uh, uh, that is the thought. So, uh, if you have any good ideas, please uh, post them on the board or, or let me know, or I could just accumulate a bunch of haikus and yodel them. Uh, these are all options, um, which which I think only go to show why it's so good that I'm in philosophy and not show business. So. Oh, we're also working on a new feature. I'm not going to get into the details now, but uh, thanks to some wonderful technical help from our listeners, uh, we're working on a new feature for the Free Domain Radio website that I think will be of no small interest to you. Yes, I mean you, not you, you. Questions from the listeners. Certainly, could I suppose remix "Baby Got Back" to "Steph Got Forehead"? Music video would be very helpful as well. We have two backup dancers now. Oh yeah!
4: Hello, Steph. Hello. Hello, it's uh, Manuel. How's it going? I'm fine. Uh, I hope now that my microphone is working uh, is gonna be better, because uh, now I I think if uh, I keep my mouth uh, three inch from the mic, uh, the sound will be better. So it's good. Uh, don't go hear... ahead
0: with your question or comment.
4: But it's a co- it's a comment I would like to make uh, to to show you that since I'm open to uh, your ideas on freedom and free market, even my Marxist view. Are different and uh, this week uh, once again I was thinking to you about something uh, because where I work we are unionized you understand? I do okay and uh, I realized because I've been working there for 10 years and I re- the union I realized how the union is it's it's really bad I mean uh, First of all As a Marxist I consider The union Is not there To fight The cause But only try To fight Some effect And This And uh, Also I realize That people That are in the union It's really The most Corrupted And the most Stupid people I have ever seen And in the In the In the factory most people that are in the unions are really the most stupid and the most corrupted people that are in the shop. So it's a comment I wanted to make. So I think that to be to become open to libertarianism helped, helped me a lot to see this.
0: Right, because I suppose the temptation in a Marxist analysis would be to say that somehow the stupidity of the union leaders is... The result of them having to battle corporate interests in a free market, or you'd be tempted for that, rather than the empirical fact that the most competent people in the world tend not to go into politics or union leadership or whatever, but to actually produce things of value in the real world. But uh, I would say this uh, uh, that uh, I am certainly no, uh, I I personally have no hostility to unions whatsoever, and I am. sure that in a a non-violent economic system, in other words, a a system without a centralized state, unions would have a very powerful, important and productive role to play to balance out the power of those who have inherited, earned or otherwise own the means of production. So I think that unions uh, have a, a great deal of uh, noble history behind them, a great deal of genuinely and yes, positively fighting for workers' rights, and uh, I actually uh, uh, am no small fan of unions and what they've done to help uh, balance the power of of state corporatism. But I think that they would look quite different in a uh, in a voluntary or nonviolent economic situation.
4: Yeah, uh, I th- yeah, I think you're right. Of course, I have my own critis- criticism of unions that are marxist that you would probably don't agree but you mean that uh, they are attempting
0: to find the best in a bad situation rather than change the system
4: i mean that they are fighting the the effect rather than the cause. right and often they are even they are but how can i say they are they are on the side of the companies i mean they are on the side of the of the of the biggies rather than on the workers i mean they often especially i would would say since 30 to 40 years i think they've betrayed they betrayed often the workers telling them yeah accept that it's uh or you're gonna lose your job or you accept that because it's uh it's better than nothing
0: Uh, right and there is i think a a strong argument to be made uh, and this is a it's a uh, it, it's a lengthy chain of reasoning, though i'll I'll keep it brief just for reasons of of efficiency, but there's a strong argument to be made, and uh, uh, I've seen it made very effectively to say something like this that uh, unions uh, give money to political parties, and political parties in return will uh, provide legal protection for unions. In other words, you can't break strikes which give which give unions uh, an unjust monopoly over. The um, the the corporations or the companies that the union employ unionized employees work for, and they will also do things like raise the minimum wage in order to bolster their own wage demands, which again is using the power of the state to throw, unfortunately, the poorest and most vulnerable members of society out of work. Right, because when you raise the minimum wage, you don't get poor people paying more; you just get fewer poor people employed. And yeah, I, as a I, I, uh, sorry, just uh, let me finish. As a result of, of yeah, this union, but this is sort of uh, this uh, collusion between unions and uh, governments, particularly in the realm of of uh, upping social spending and social benefits, what happens is that the, uh, the country as a whole becomes uh, less productive. Government bills go up, which forces foreign lending,? Do right? you have to go to the foreigners to borrow money to prop up your currency? Uh, if you look at America and to a smaller degree Canada, the largest uh, uh, creditors to these already practically bankrupt societies uh, are the Japanese and the Chinese. And if you look at where the biggest trade imbalances are, particularly with China now, it's uh, in China, right? So when China says we want uh, free access to import into America, of course, American the American government has to say yes, because it's so indebted. And so Uh, Unions have played some role in causing a collapse of the manufacturing sectors within North America and, of course, in in Western Europe. So that you get a – because they focus not on the long-term health and and income of the working classes, for want of a better phrase, but rather maximizing their benefits to their members at the moment regardless of what happens in the future. And the union collusion with governments, I think, has done a lot to – open up a non-reciprocal market to really low-cost foreign goods, which has really crippled and destroyed the, um, the manufacturing sector in North America, which has been just tragic, right? I mean, the, the, the route out of the lower class to the middle class was through manual labor. And manual labor, if we look at it in terms of skilled manual labor, was manufacturing. And with that avenue closed off, it, it is a really big leap to go from the lower classes to the middle classes I know because I made that tra- yes I made that transition and it was not the easiest thing in the world to say the least uh, and uh, I think that n- lack of a rising tide lifting all boats has caused huge huge social problems uh, in in the world because a lot of people don't feel in the uh, lower classes that they have this escalator up through you know honorable and skilled manual labor to the middle class is a better life for their children, and where you can't get goodies from society, you no longer want to obey society's rules, and I think this causes a lot of problems. So it's complicated, and I don't want to go into it too much detail, but uh, I think it is a uh, it is a big and tragic problem what's happened to the working classes. Yes. You'll be happy to know that uh, in my new book I have a whole section on classes. So, because <laughs> I think that it's a very, very valid concept. I don't necessarily go with the Marxist analysis of class completely, but I think that it yeah, is a very, very uh, important concept. And I think that there are very specific classes in the world. I would assign them slightly different categories, but uh, I think that it is an essential way to look at uh, how society functions.
4: Yeah. I I, almost, I, I agree. I think On almost everything that you just said and I just wanted to say that you you helped me to open my eye to see more things about the Union uh, than before and uh, I I really see especially where I work how they can be counterproductive they are really doing things that are not efficient I think in an ideal society like, you know, m- multitasking, you understand the word multitasking? I do. Doing more, yeah. But in the ideal society, multi-tas- multitasking is just logic and rational. Uh, whether the ideal society would be uh, your yours or mine, multitasking is just logic, it's, it's very efficient. But where I work, they, they are so much against it uh, they can make a, a grief a grievance
0: uh, i don't know the w- yeah no that's, w- that's w- the, the right word i'm sorry just just interrupt for a second for those who don't speak french uh the word multitasking roughly translates to menage a trois but sorry go on
4: <laughs> what ménage just kidding go on <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, no.
0: certainly involves yeah. my multitasking but sorry go on Oh dear! I'm so sorry. We lost your mic again. I'm I'm gonna just if you can just hold off. I'm gonna just see if we have any other qu- uh, yearning, burning questions. But uh, I think that I've I certainly do appreciate. Uh, I I really have enjoyed, uh, and I've got a whole podcast or two on this about about what Marxism has brought to contemporary debates uh, about uh, economics and class conflict and class interests. And I'm just listening to um, Matt Damon's excellent reading of Howard Zinn's a public um, a People's History of the United States. Uh, and of course he's uh, Died in the wool red coat, and uh, it is uh, well worth uh, listening to if you get a chance. And it's very interesting. I really do enjoy his analysis of class conflict and hearing, of course, the uh, the underside or the underbelly of what is typically called, you know, the sort of heyday of, of uh, laissez-faire capitalism in the 19th century and what effects it did have on the working classes. Uh, I, I I just think that stuff is just great. And I think it's, you know, part of a, a, any educated person's worldview must inv- include uh, some uh, more than a passing understanding of Marxist analysis, because its popularity results from its, uh, its significant validity in many areas. In terms of a diagnosis of the symptoms, of course, I would disagree with the solutions, but uh, you have to know the symptoms first. So, Thank you very much. I appreciate that comment, and we have uh, time for another question or two more. The true multitasker, Menage 1990, also known as Montana. I'd also like to mention that I think I'm quite pleased and proud that my new book should be my most annoying and controversial book. Uh, I I always like to up the beehive quotient in each of the book. And by that, I don't mean the hairdo, but basically having your head trapped in a hive of bees when it comes to challenging uh, topics uh, and approaches. So that will be exciting. Uh, I also got an invitation to be the closing speaker at the Liberty Forum. This year, uh, I'm going to just talk to the guy, I, I think Monday, to, to go over some details, and we're yeah, we're pretty sure we're going to go. I mean, if, if the invite works out, and last year it was Ron Paul, the year before it was John Stossel, uh, let's hope it's a step up to have me <laughs> yammering away at the uh, closing ceremonies, and um, that will be, uh, we'd be interesting. It's in New Hampshire, uh, the 5th to the 8th of March, I do believe. And let me just, uh, I'll get the website for you in just a second. FreeStateProject.org forward slash Liberty Forum, March 5th to 8th in, uh, well, it'll be, uh, in Nashua, Nashua, New Hampshire. Uh, so we will be uh, Christina and Isabella, and I will be sharing the driving down because we got a high chair for Christina, and uh, we we may be there for the whole weekend um, and uh, meet meet some uh, meet and greet some people. So if you're anywhere around New Hampshire early next month, uh, feel free to drop by. It'd be nice to meet uh, anybody who's uh, who's a listener um, to to drop by, and and I'm sure we'll be floating around. Just look for. Uh, what looks like a relatively small pink and freckled biosphere moving through um, a crowd. That's usually I'm usually fairly close to below that. Sorry. So, yeah, so we'll uh, we're going to drive over probably uh, the 4th of March, spend a couple of days in New Hampshire because I hear it's uh, balmy and sunny. And um, that should be uh, that should be fun. Uh, I have mulled over a few topics that I'll be talking about. I don't think I'll do anything particularly religious or political, but uh, there are some things that I would like to talk about with people that I think will be uh, interesting and positive without necessarily creating a libertarian lynch mob, which would be a bit of an oxymoron. But I think that I could probably pull off should I want to, which I don't. So just wanted to mention that. There is no topic that they have suggested uh, that I talk about, so um, I assume that it's uh, it's an open topic, and uh, it should be fun. Hello. 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 Steph. Hello.
1: Hi, Steph. Um, can you hear me? Uh huh. Um, I have a, I don't have a great connection, but if you have any trouble hearing me, I have. Problem
0: calling another time um, I'm sorry you're really cutting out a lot um, perhaps we could uh, talk and maybe, maybe it's something to do with the server, but we could do a one-on-one perhaps just because uh, it's uh, it's uh, tough to follow what you're saying.
1: Absolutely sorry for yeah, that. Starting, yeah no
2: not a problem
0: um, Thank you okay. All right well last call for our questions we could have a short show this week. Uh, welcome, of course. Mwah. Big, wet, only slightly sloppy Canadian kiss. Welcome to the new listeners who are joining. Uh, the board registration is uh, is back open. And i uh, really like to welcome uh, the quantity and the quality of the people who are joining the board. Uh, it is just wonderful to see how many bright, intelligent, articulate people there are out there who are very interested in philosophy. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope to have... Perhaps uh, later this uh, upcoming week, maybe Friday, I would like to have what I guess could technically be called the determinist mosh pit. Uh, I would like to get, uh, you know, maybe half a dozen of the uh, hardcore determinist listeners on a debate. We could use uh, Uvu with some nice uh, video um, uh, interactions, which I think would be great. Uh, I would really, really like to um, just get all because, you know, these threads are just so boring. And, and I it guess it's not because people aren't smart or anything like that. It just I feel like I'm making the same points over and over again. And I'm sure that the, the uh, determinants feel that way as well. And uh, I thought that uh, it would help to post my three part series on the definition and solution to the problem of free will. But um, people seem to have listened to it, but don't seem to have gotten it. And so that obviously demotivates me to continue to post about it. And I'm sure that it's as as annoying for the determinists. So I thought we might want to uh, get together uh, and spend some highly quality uh, time uh, going through uh, these issues. Because, uh, you know, I certainly don't feel any joy whatsoever when a new thread opens up on determinism. And maybe other people do. But uh, I certainly don't see any particular enthusiasm from longer term listeners. And uh, because we haven't resolved the issue, it just means that there are two sides of a tired debate that don't want to interact anymore. And I think that's a real shame because I think there are ways to logically answer these questions. Uh, And so hopefully uh, the, if you are a determinist uh, you know, post on the board um, I guess maybe in a compatibilist if you like and uh, let's uh, you know, let's uh, let's really get it on and uh, you know, let's set aside an hour or two or three to go through these issues and just find a way to, uh, to come to some resolutions uh, about stuff because it is not so obscure and impossible uh, a question that we need to have spent a couple of years dancing around and coming to no resolutions uh, fundamentally it seems whatsoever so uh, I think that um, uh, we really do need to sit down and and just hash this stuff out for the sanity of uh, of everyone involved I think <laughs> so that we can come to some sort of productive conclusion about this stuff. It is not. Beyond the realm of possibility, we've had these issues uh, before. And this is not to put it all in the same category. We've had these issues before with uh, nihilism, with agnosticism, with minarchism, with uh, political uh, action. And we've been able to come to some pretty strong resolutions uh, about these uh, issues. So let's you know, sit down and, uh, and really try to hammer it out. I think that would be a lot more productive and fun. And I won't get a chance to work on a – to finish really a, a video – on determinism for the next two or three weeks, just finishing up the book. But I can certainly take the time to have a stirring uh, and uh, and vivid debate uh, about the issues. So uh, please post on the board, and if you all can, my time is pretty flexible. So uh, if you all can come up with a a time that is somewhat reasonable, not too early in the morning uh, on Eastern Standard Time, uh, I will be uh, be all over it and uh, get yourself a webcam, pick up a copy of UVU, o o v o o dot com, and uh, let's. Uh, Let's get it on. Oh, yeah. All right. L- last call for questions. The word, she is yours. The question hook is swinging over you. Hello.
5: Okay. I have headphones now. Um... Right now I'm in an MBA program and it's at a pretty good school and I think I'll be finishing about a year. And basically my question is, um, what's a, cause I've been reading a blog of a guy who's basically in the, you know, involved in the same conversation. Um, kind of takes a different angle on things, but I've, I've just become pretty concerned lately and he made a distinction in his blog between like a parasite class and a productive worker class. And it kind of, you follow what he's saying and even you you sort of, in a way, said the same thing. Um, someone who goes through a graduate business program is pretty much going to be part of the parasite class. I mean, it's really maybe a crude way of distinguishing between the two. So, I mean, I... I
0: Sorry, why? Uh, why do you think that would be the case?
5: Um, just because of. It? I guess the. It's the. I mean, it's it's really it's really oversimplifying the issue. I want to say that first, because you know I don't mean to suggest that yeah, everybody who goes into top management is a parasite. Nothing like that. But just from the point of view that most. You could say that most MBAs or a lot of MBAs are are going to go and try to work for a large corporation not necessarily but a lot and that most large corporations are large corporations because of the state and pretty much they exist and continue to exist because whatever advantages the state affords them thus if you're going to go and you're going to use your skills to you know, grow and enhance the wealth of a large corporation. You're just going out to to help pull taxes or whatever it is. You know, unfair competitive advantages to to extract revenue from you know the again productive workers or the rest of society or you know just depending on um, what line of work you're in. But so that's that's the basis of it. So, my question is basically what i guess what what you know what kind of a career path should I, should I be considering you know what should I try and do to avoid that
0: well again this is um i mean this is a this is a tough question, and I'm sure that you're aware that there's no objective answer again relative to I don't think you want to go and work for a place that manufactures military equipment, right? I mean, that that'd be pretty gross. And at the same time, of course, there would be certain um, certain ways of life where you could be sure you were not participating in the state uh, in any way, shape, or form. The problem is, of course, that you'd be living in a cave and all that kind of stuff, right? Which I don't think is a very. I think I think that's abandoning the post if you have abilities as a thinker, a philosopher, and a communicator, to go and live in a cave to me is uh, abandoning the post of, of an honorable thing you could be doing to help free the world. That's my opinion. There are things that, that I do, of course. So something like what I do is is fairly close to a stateless situation, right? I mean, I'm <laughs> using very few state resources and and so on. So, um, But I think that you could absolutely find companies that have – Uh, a minimal to very low involvement with the state, right? So Microsoft, for instance, right? I mean, uh, I'm no huge expert, but as far as I understand it, the reason they got into trouble with the DOJ in the 90s was because they didn't have a man in Washington, so to speak, right? So there are large companies. I would know more about them in the software field. You know, some place like Honeywell, well, Honeywell has a lot of involvement with military contracts, so that would be a little less along that continuum. But, of course, there are areas within Honeywell that would deal with um, consumer concerns, right? The, the HVAC systems and all that, again, I'm not, it's not the most glamorous stuff, but for sure there would be places you could work even within large companies that would not, be, would not have the same heavy involvement with statist activity, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, you could look for companies that don't have much involvement with status stuff. You could look at. But, of course, you know, when you're in Microsoft, they're going to be trying to sell their software to the Department of Education. Right? I mean, that's just the nature of the beast, right? I mean, I struggled with it. Uh, you'll struggle with it. It's actually not that much of a struggle. I, You know, we we didn't make the world. We got to navigate our way within it. And I think that becoming a purist is to limit your life too much, not for any particular gain, right? It's not like if you don't sell uh, Microsoft software to The Department of uh, um, Education It's not like, okay, well, the Department of Education is going to collapse and we're going to get private schools, right? It just means that someone else is going to do it, right? So that doesn't solve the problem. The problem is solved at a much more fundamental philosophical and psychological level and through the integrity that you bring to your interactions, not um, based on particular decisions you make, which won't change a damn thing in the long run. Um, so I would say, look for big companies that have a minimal state involvement, look for departments or divisions within big companies, right? GE, of course, a huge company, uh, and you can work in divisions in GE that have very little to do with the state. Are they regulated by the state? Well, of course, but I mean, you have to drive on public roads to get to any job, right? Does, do we say no, uh, because of that, right? It's like, I, I don't think that we want to say, well, my house is on fire, but the government has a monopoly on the fire service, so I'm just going to let it burn, right? I mean, that to me is not a sensible way to deal with the problems of uh, society, right? So you can look for companies, and, and this is not, to me, primarily because of some sort of philosophical purist approach, but this to me would simply be to be happier, right? The The, the closer you get to dealing with the state on a regular basis, the more unhappy you will get, right? Because it just sucks, right? Uh, dealing with the government is difficult and time-consuming and political. And I can speak with some really significant personal experience as far as that goes. So I, would, uh, I, would, I don't think that there's any necessity for you to not work for big companies uh, if that's where your MBA has the greatest value. I would definitely try to steer your career towards a lesser involvement with the government uh, not because of philosophical purity but because uh it just won't it won't make you happy right in fact it will make you quite unhappy The the people who cluster around government contracts even on the co- even on the company you'll be working for uh, they just kind of low quality political manipulative you know kind of oogie people to say the least right so You want to stay, I think, as close as you can to voluntary customers, as close as you can to as free market a situation as you can. Maybe this would lead you towards more developing economies, right? Maybe this would lead you more towards India or China or you know Vietnam or Cambodia or other places where there are – or Singapore, right, where there is a a significant degree of economic freedom. There's lots of things that you can do within big companies that will be of real benefit to – the two customers and to your income and to all of those things, which will not uh, require you to fundamentally or significantly compromise your values. And the last thing that I would say is, of course, MBA recipients uh, end up in management. And I will say this for sure. And I, again, stick by this having had, I guess, uh, the, the, I, not a huge number. The biggest I had, I think, was 28 or 30 employees was the, was the biggest, the largest number of people who ever reported to me. But I will say that your commitment to voluntarism, to uh, the free market, to respect for individuals, to communication, hopefully some of the emotional stuff that you might have picked up from Free Domain Radio, will make you a very good boss to work for. And I wouldn't deny potential employees the value of having you as a boss versus someone else, because all of those employees will be very strongly affected by having you as a boss. And, and that will flow through to their friends, to their families, to their children. Uh, being in a position of authority in this, in this way will be very beneficial to people who work for you. And maybe uh, you will end up with 500 people working for you or 1,000 people working for you. That is a pretty sweet way to spread the principles of voluntarism, philosophy, uh, respect, uh, and all of those kinds of good things. Uh, and integrity and so on, and you will be bringing a lot of happiness and positivity into people's lives that they wouldn't otherwise have so you think of the good that you can do with the authority that you can get uh, and again i i i'm just not i'm not a real big fan of this philosophical purity thing it it just strikes me as as religious fundamentally, you know, as a kind of ab like life is complicated we have to navigate, we have to negotiate there is ambivalence there is. Uh, the complications in every decision that we make. And I think for people to try and cut and dry it to a sort of black and white formula is not, and I'm not saying that you're doing that. I mean, just, just so you understand, right? I, I think that it it is it is really denying the richness and the complexity of life. There will be difficult decisions to make in a completely free society as well because there will be uh, defense DROs that may you may not agree with. And there will be companies doing business with those defense DROs. And there will be those Kinds of of challenges, right? There will be companies that have questionable business practices in an anarchic society, and you will have to make decisions about how to deal with those. There will be dysfunctional people in a stateless society, and you will have them as bosses or uh, like managers at a horizontal level or employees, and you'll have to figure out how to deal with those. There will still be child abuse, and you may have evidence of it, and you'll figure, have to figure out how to deal with that, and right? So there will still be complications and ambivalence in a stateless society as well. So I think that uh, hoping that there's some sort of join the dots purity test that we can apply to uh, to help us through these decisions, I think is. And, and, and I also get this. Um, sorry, the last thing I say, is, it's kind of like an original sin because it's impossible to escape without vanishing from society completely. And even then, you're still acting on statism. You're just acting to escape it. But it's something that to me is always it, it has always struck me as a kind of fallback position for people who've lost an argument. You know, like, so, so this happens on YouTube or sometimes in other places where I debate, for want of a better word, you know, where, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, well, you pay your taxes, don't you? So you can't be against the state because if you were really against the state, you wouldn't pay your tax. Like, it's just a way of, of graciously, of, of ungraciously refusing to admit that you've been disproven, if that makes any sense. Like then just saying, oh yeah, well, if you if you're supposed to be so consistent, why are you hypocritical about this? And that's not what the debate is about. But people will will re, will will go there rather than deal with the issues that are actually at hand. And it's just a kind of it's a kind of nuclear bomb that people drop uh, when they're losing an argument. If that makes sense.
5: Yeah, totally. It's it's to say you know, well, because you missed the spot here, your entire argument's invalid, or.
0: Well, no, because I don't think like I don't think it even misses a spot. It's not even a question of missing a spot because I don't, I don't view the fact that I pay my taxes as any kind of moral corruption on my part. it it it, it's nothing to do with any ethical decisions on my part. The fact that I pay my taxes is because I will not be banned from living in society. Because there are bad people in the world. I am not going to make my decisions about living in society, about living a civilized life with an income, with a house, with dentistry, with, with access to deodorant, <laughs> with all of these. I'm not going to make my decision about living in society because there are some assholes in a capital city with guns you know, a thousand miles away from me. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. My decision about living in society is not dependent upon whether bad people a couple of hundred years ago failed to establish a stateless society. I mean, I'm just not going to do it. It's not going to be a moral decision that I am going to accept. You, you know, people may as well expect me to pay restitutions for slavery, right? I mean, it, it's not my moral decision about the life that I was born into, the world that I have inherited. I think that there are moral decisions to be made, and I think the most important moral decisions to be made about how we are going to spend the freedoms that we retain to help build a better, happier and freer world in the future. That, to me, is where the moral decisions make. Uh, but I feel absolutely no guilt, no shame, no compromise to my virtue, value or ethics whatsoever from complying with the brutal rules of a state of society. It's, you know, it's the world that was born in that I was born into. Uh, and I'm not going to make my decisions conditional upon violence, right? Because if I were to flee and go live in a cave, obviously I wouldn't be able to do the kind of good that I hope that I'm doing now, and I would still not be free because I would be having to live in a cave because there were bad people in the world. That's not called freedom, in my opinion. So uh, I just don't take any shred of of guilt or ownership for um, for the fact that that I you know was born into this world and have to live. Uh, with uh, a socially sanctioned violence that's impossible to resist. Uh, I will do my best to change that in the future, but I'm not going to be chased out of a civilized life because there are bad people in the world. Yeah, and I hope you realize that, that that applies to you as well, I hoped.
5: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah, I mean... I mean, the, the whole decision is, I mean, part of it is, it's kind of, it's a continuum, you know, obviously I, I'm not going to, um, I don't know, try to become a lawyer and see if I can work in politics, um, but at the same time, like you said, I'm not going to go live in a cave either, and so, you know, deciding what I'm going to do, you know, it. it's, I guess it's two things. Well, how am I going to use my skills in education and then where am I going to use them? And sort of the where is on the continuum I and mean, how is how I use them. That determines what kind of a life I live, what kind of benefits I get from my job. And if I, you know, weight my whole decision toward the where, then I, you know, if, if I'm going to go purist and think, you know, cave into the continuum, then I'm going to give up a lot of those benefits and keep allowing myself, just like you said, you know, I didn't create the world and, and it's not my fault, there are bad people in it, so I shouldn't then try to, I don't know, internalize whatever it is other people have done and try to um, make my professional decisions, I guess, subject to, to that that they've made. and so I mean I agree completely.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I approach it to in a nutshell is this, which is that I'm gonna live like there's no government. I'm, I'm, I'm living like there's no government. right? So I don't vote because in a stateless society, there'd be no voting. Yeah. right? I don't uh, get involved in politics because in a stateless society, There'd be no politics. Yeah. Right? I don't uh, uh, fuss and fight about having to pay my money in taxation because in a free society, there'd be no taxation. Right? I just say to myself, hey, it's sort of like people donate 30% less. Would I be okay with that? Yeah, I'm not happy, but okay. So, you know, I just pay them their money and uh, live like they're not there. Right? That, that's how we, right? If I were to flee into the woods, the state would be running my entire life. Just live like they're not there. Live like you're already in a free society. Live like you're already in a stateless society. Right? Because in a free society, right, a free society would require that people accept that you know child abuse is bad or whatever so that no, no media would ever attack me in a free society for standing up for an abused kid, right? So i just live like it's all going to pass and you know it it it's not real right cuz if you live like it's not real i mean it eventually will become not real right i mean that, that but if we if we make all our decisions relative to the state and its power and its influence and its violence then we're just reinforcing the fact that it exists which it doesn't right Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the government. I mean, I'm not like I never have or whatever. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the government. I mean, I had to do my taxes over the last couple of weeks, and you know, that's a drag, right? But uh, I'm done with it, and I don't think about it anymore. And that's the only way that I really know how to be free of a state that is largely omnipresent is just live like it's not there. Make my decision. So that's why I'm saying, don't make your decisions based on intellectual purity, because that is. Allowing the existence of the state to dominate your decision-making, but make it based on a practical knowledge of the considerations at hand, which is that if you go work for the Defense Department, you won't be happy, right? So not because, oh, my God, it's intellectually impure or whatever, right, if that makes any sense.
5: Totally.
0: Was there anything else? I hope that that's given you some freedom, right? That's what I want to try and communicate, right? Because we don't want to be dominated by ideology any more than we want to be dominated by the state, right? Right. So I hope that's uh, helped in terms of uh, keeping your decision-making open, uh, decision-making open and flexible.
5: It does. I mean, it simplifies things for me because I, mean, I have a mostly financial background and Just over the last few months, I've learned a lot of things about the financial system that really just kind of makes me go, hmm, should I change fields? And, yeah, that really opens things up for me again. And, you know, it puts my focus back to, wait a minute, you know, I didn't make things the way they are, and I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't hold myself responsible. Different if I designed the system, which obviously I didn't. And I'd be a little narcissistic to, I think, take the whole world on your shoulders like that.
0: Anyway, right. So, and it's not, you know, it's not, it's not realistic, and it's not true. Like, if we lived in a stateless society, there would be companies that would manufacture guns, and I wouldn't want to work with them. Not, not because I have anything innately problematic against gun ownership. I just don't want to work with a bunch of people who are really fascinated by guns. Like in the same way that I wouldn't want to work on a road crew. I just wouldn't have anything in common with them, right? So we would have restrictions based upon our talents, abilities, and so on uh, in a free society as well, but that's, you know, just live like the government isn't there and recognize that, you know, so if there's a bunch of... uh, 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 if there's a bunch of, uh, in a stateless society, there would be a bunch of paperwork that would need to be done, right? Uh, there would be a bunch of really, you know, basic, annoying monkey work, Excel, financial grinding stuff that you'd have to do, or that would have to be done in any company to, you'd still have to report annual earnings or whatever, and you'd still have stock to debt ratios and all that kind of crap. And you probably wouldn't want a job doing that, Right. And so taxation is just another kind of bureaucracy, and unfortunately it's an inflicted bureaucracy, but that bureaucracy would still exist in a stateless society. And if you don't want to work, if you wouldn't want to work there in a stateless society, society, then obviously you want to work there even less in a stateless society, if that makes sense. But not because it's intellectually impure or you're supporting the state, but just like, hell, I wouldn't want to do this if if it was in a free society, so I'm not going to do it in a stateless society either. Right. And that's why, you know, I get these requests for this true news stuff, do more contemporary events about the government. It's like, but I don't want to spend that much time paying attention to the government. Certainly not going to set the world free. I won't do any harm and I'll do some of it. Right. But uh, it, it I just want to live like it's not there. That's the best way that I know of to to uh, to help spread the idea of a state the society is to just not notice the damn state. Right. Okay. anyway, I don't want to go on too long, but that's sort of my my thoughts. And, uh, you know, follow follow your bliss as far as your career goes and trust that what you want to do is going to be the right thing to do. Right. I mean, the whole point of, of, you know, becoming really good at tennis is you can just go out and play. Right. And the whole point of becoming really good at philosophy and self-knowledge is to just trust. That you don't have to guide yourself, you don't have to have, like, you're not like a, philosophy is not like a seeing eye dog that if you, you know, if you lose track of it, you're going to get creamed by a bus or something, right? I mean, it's to trust that with enough self-knowledge and enough philosophical understanding and good enough relationships in your life that what you want to do is going to be the right thing anyway, right? But not to say, well, I want to do this, but I can't because it's intellectually impure. That's living at an arm's length managerial distance to philosophy. And I think that philosophy should inhabit us more and guide us in a way that we trust our own uh, preferences, desires and instincts after a certain amount of, of exposure and self-knowledge. That would sort of be my, you know, do, do what makes you happy. Because if you're philosophically inclined and you have a good degree of self-knowledge, that which makes you happy will be the right thing anyway. Good, good. So go forth and prosper. All right, well, thank you so much. That was an excellent call, and they're all wonderful, excellent calls. Uh, you know, Massive uh, props and compliments now to the Sirius frontal lobes uh, orbiting the uh, FDR space station. So uh, thank you, everybody, so much. Uh, thank you for uh, recent donators. Uh, I have finished uh, ecosystem. <coughs> excuse me, part three, which uh, I will uh, send out to um, subscribers. And uh, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful week. I will try and spend a little bit more time Uh, on the uh, board the chat room and uh, maybe produce a podcast or two this week but uh, i am pretty consumed with this book and uh, i will talk to you a wonderful genius brilliant blazingly bright people uh, relatively soon and have a great week